morning again. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to do all the ministries that we do here at this church if we didn't have those who uh, are on staff here, uh, who work, and then uh, those who um, volunteer, all the volunteer hours that, uh, that you all put in uh, to this church. Uh, uh, in all types of situations, I mean, I'm not just talking about Sunday school teachers and elders and deacons and that type of, but um, just a whole bunch of other things that people volunteer for. Uh, the pastor's words, uh, poor Gigi, she has to read those things and try to make sense of it. I, I think sometimes she just puts a Daily Bread article there in my place because uh, she just doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, and... and but we have all types of volunteers, and this ministry, I mean, it's been a very unique year, but by God's grace, you all have been so faithful to the Lord here at this church, and uh, we've continued to minister to people, kept on reaching out to people, and so that's, I, I'm very, very thankful for that. Thank you all so much for how you have given to the Lord. Uh, we are in Judges chapter 20, and you'll see that it's uh, verses 1 through 48. You're like, wow, that is a uh, ton of verses. Um, but um, what I was thinking about was that um, I, I remember when I was in college, I'd go with my roommate down to uh, his parents' home, and they would always uh, pack him with a bunch of food and send him back. And we're not having Sunday evening service or Wednesday service, so I thought I'd give you a little extra so it'd kind of get you through the week, right, until next Sunday. So you're like, it's a lot of verses, but I'm just giving you a little extra. That way you'll make it till next Sunday. And uh, you won't be starving, right? Uh, so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll start in verse 1, Judges chapter 20. And we'll start in verse 1. The Word of God says, Then all the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of all people, even all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel inheritance. For they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all of you sons of Israel, give your advice and your counsel here. Then all the people rose as one, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand to supply food for the people, that when they came, come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they might punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? 
How then deliver them up, now then deliver them up, the men and the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the city of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on the day the sons of Benjamin were numbered, 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered, 700 choice men out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed, which uh, one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Then the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who drew draw the sword, all the men of war. Now the sons of Israel rose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the son of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to the battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. The sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on the day 22,000 men of Israel. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle against uh, again, in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day, the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground. Again, 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until the evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Israel, uh, Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeon. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah. As, a t as other times. And the sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And they began to strike and, some, and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. The sons of Benjamin said, they are struck down before us as the first. But the sons of Israel said, Let us flee, that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel rose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Maragibah, when 10,000 choice men from all Israel came out against Gibeah. The battle became fierce. But Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, and the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who drew, draw the sword. 
So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. When the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because of, they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the, the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke arise from the city. Then the men of Israel turned in the battle, and Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. For they said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city was going up in a smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw the disaster was close to them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded the Benjamin and pursued them without rest and trotted them down opposite to Gibeah towards the east. Thus, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimnon. But they were caught, 5,000 men of them, on the highway and overtook them at Gibeah and killed 2,000 of them. So that all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon. And they remained at the Rock of Rimmon for, for four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. Let's pray. Father, as we read this story and we see how they were making decisions, how they were looking to do your work of justice and the decisions they made, I pray that we can learn some lessons from this and apply it to our own lives. Not just for this Sunday, but for this new year, that we can be wise in how we make decisions. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's surprising uh, who God uses for his purposes, isn't it? I mean, aren't you surprised when you see certain people being used by the Lord and you think, why, how is that person being used? Uh, I remember the story of Amy Carmichael. She desperately wanted to be have blonde hair. She's from Northern Ireland. She wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes. And uh, God decided to give her uh, black hair, very dark brown eyes. And she felt, she felt deep down inside that she was ugly because she had black hair and dark brown eyes. She, she really wanted that blonde hair, and she felt like, she wasn't going to be able to be really used by the Lord as, as she could if she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And she ended up being a missionary in, in India, of all places. And um, there got to be a point there in her missionary career where India asked uh, several of the missionaries to leave. And uh, she, she wasn't asked to leave. She was able to continue ministering there. She, she thought it was a disadvantage to have the black hair and dark brown eyes. She, she thought it was all her life, and then she saw how God used this in a situation to be able to continue ministering. She had an orphanage there, and she continued ministering. It's amazing how God uses different situations that we don't even think to get our attention to see how he's sovereignly working in our lives. 
Uh, here in this text that we're seeing, uh, we see that the outcome of what the Levite did where he cut off his concubine and sent her out throughout the land, now Israel has gathered together, and they're gathered together as one to find out what has happened there. Uh, God has used the wickedness of Benjamin, and he's going to use this wickedness to show Israel their need to turn to God. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're tying this to, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the king, as the sovereign one, the one who's supposed to be Lord of our lives, and we are his disciples, and we go out and make other disciples. It's important that if we're thinking about our job as Christians is to live under the lordship of Christ and to be making disciples, we kind of need to know what a disciple is. A disciple, if we don't have a crystal clear image of what a disciple is, we might be shooting at something that's wrong, right? We might be trying all 2021 uh, going towards this thing that we think is a disciple and then realize, well, we went in the wrong direction. Uh, so for me, a disciple is um, a disciple is a person who knows God and submits to his lordship in his life so that he can live wisely in this world. It's a person that knows God, has a relationship with God, and that starts by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, accepting that when Jesus Christ came and died on that cross and was buried, resurrected and ascended, that that act, that work that he did is what paid for the price of my sins to redeem me out of the slave market of sin. That work that he did, not any work that I do, that has given me salvation so that I can know him. Now, when we think about knowing, knowing God, it, it involves two aspects. One we could say would be an academic aspect where we uh, can read something, study Right? We can, can know. We can look at maps and try to find these cities. We can study these texts and, and get to know them. And that would probably be an academic sense. But also, uh, knowing we can know experientially uh, by, by practice. And I've used this illustration before. There's no oven in the world that when you look at their instruction manual, it's going to say, our ovens are actually five degrees off. So you'll need to turn it up a little bit more. Right? <laughs> no one's going to put that in their instructions. But after you're baking a couple times, you say, this isn't getting done. And you got to bump it up a little bit, and you say, ah, the oven's off, right? So you can't learn that academically. You can't read the instructions on that oven and say, oh, because they're not going to tell you that. They're going to say, our oven is perfect, right? Uh, you learn that through experience. And part of your walk with the Lord is putting what you learn uh, about God, what you've read about him, and putting it into practice and really getting to understand who God is, through living the Christian life. So there's that knowledge aspect, but also uh, there's this aspect of submitting to the, his lordship. Now, we've seen over and over again in this text that they're doing the opposite. They're, they say that there is no king in the land. They are not submitting to the lordship of God. Even though they've entered into a covenant with God, they're not going to submit to his, his uh, lordship, his kingship in, the, in their lives. So it's submitting to his lordship to live in this life uh, so we can live wisely. <laughs> the Bible has a bunch of words in here, but we face all types of situations in our life that the Bible doesn't address. It, it just doesn't. A and for a Christian, you can try to think that the Christian life is all about memorizing a bunch of rules and regulations, but you end up finding yourself in situations that there's just nothing mentioned. And then you have to decide, how am I going to act? 
It's a matter of acting wisely. And what is wisely? It's what will glorify God in this situation. Uh, that, that becomes very tricky because sometimes we want things just in black and white. What can I do? What can I not do? But it's not about that. We, to live a life that glorifies God, we have to look at situations and determine what would glorify God the most. You, you can always tell a carnal Christian. Carnal Christian, uh, well, and I, uh, uh, just a regular Christian. Let, let's not use a carnal. Just a regular Christian is always asking, uh, is this thing good or bad, right? And if it's good, then they might do it. But a Christian that's looking to grow in, in a relationship with God, he doesn't ask if it's good or not. Obviously, the bad you're not supposed to do, you're making a decision between what's good and what's best, right? And that's where wisdom comes in. What's the best thing that I could do in this situation? And that's what a disciple does. A disciple submits to the lordship of Christ to live wisely in this world. I could spend... I don't play video games, so... I could spend 10 hours playing video games. Or... I could spend 10 hours doing something else for the Lord. Which one is the wisest thing in that time? Well, if I'm in quarantine, well, maybe 10 hours of video games is worthwhile. But if I'm available to be ministering to people, I think my time would be spent better doing something else. It's about living wisely. Now, as we look at this story, we're going to see that they're not really living very wisely. And what we're going to be looking at is that Christians must focus their attention on developing a relationship with God before being before being angry at the injustices of the world. Notice that I put the word before. Not that we shouldn't get angry at the injustices of the world. Not that we shouldn't be engaging with the different uh, injustices that happen. But first, we need to have a deep walk with the Lord. We're going to see that Israel messes up in this story because they don't have a walk with God. And therefore, they start end up killing a bunch of people that they should have not have been killing. So it, it comes to having a uh, knowing and developing relationship with God. Now, how do we develop a proper relationship with God? Uh, first, we have to uh, uh, seek to know God. We have to seek to know Him. That doesn't come easy. It isn't like you put your pillow, you put your Bible underneath your pillow, and you just lay down, and somehow it just seeps up into your head, right? That that doesn't happen. It takes studying, which means that you have to take time and, and decide. I'm not going to do all these other things. I'm going to spend time knowing God. But it's also about uh, to seek to obey God. You have to seek to obey God. Uh, there are a thousand different choices. And one of those choices is I'm going to obey God. And the thing is, a person who is in a relationship with God seeks to obey God. Uh, sometimes we don't think about this, but it's really important. Uh, how long would a marriage last if the person with the spouse wasn't seeking to know their other spouse? Oh, yeah, I already know. I already know what she's going to say. She's going to say, pick up your socks, hang up your shirt, fold up your clothes. There's no need to talk to her anymore. Right? That wouldn't work. Uh, maybe for a week, if that. But also being involved with each other, obeying each other. There, there, there's an aspect. This is how relationships develop. And the same is true with God. That we should be increasing in our knowledge of God and increasing in obeying God. So last year I was here, but this year I'm going to strive to even be more obedient. Now as we look at this, we're going to see some different scenes. And the first scene is the testimony of the Levite. And these aren't necessarily points to, you know, logical points. They're just divisions so we can have a better grasp on this whole text and how it is. And this found in verses 1 through 7. We see that there's this 
this Levite somehow is able, this unnamed Levite is somehow able to bring all of Israel together, minus Benjamin. From J Judges chapter 1, what we've seen is that more and more as the chapters developed, that Israel, all the different tribes became more separate. They all started doing their own thing. Rather than working together to, uh, to punish the land, uh, punish the people who were in the land, to act righteously, they started all being worried about their own stuff, preoccupied with their own things, and all the tribes began to separate. But here's this unnamed Levite, and he is able to bring all of them together, all the way from Dan, from all the way down to Beersheba. They come together, and they come as a congregation. It says over and over again, as one man, united as one man. And they come together as an assembly of people of God, or before the Lord. So here they are, they, they've come together, and it's quite an impressive group. As it says there, uh, 400,000 people. That's an amazing group of people to come out. They come out to find out what has happened. Why are these body parts being shipped around all of Israel? And they've come together, 400,000 soldiers, all who can handle a sword. And, and they come, as it says there in verse 3, they come together, and um, all except for Benjamin. Oh, that's interesting. Here's Benjamin, and they get the same news that everybody else, and they hear that all of Israel is gathered together, gathered together before the Lord, but they say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm going to choose not to partake this time. Maybe next year, I might have my calendar a little bit freer, but I, this year I'm not going to do it. I've got things to do. So they decide not to go. And they, Israel demands, tell us now, uh, why did this wickedness take place? So the Levite starts to answer. Now the Levite has a very peculiar position because he is a priest. And in a certain way, as a priest in a nation that has God as its ruler, he really could have been the leader to come and start the conversation, but he is kind of on the, on the back burner. And once he gets invited to start talking, then he starts to, to, to mention, to, to start speaking up what happened. And he starts to, to say, he says, uh, my, uh, I came with my concubine, spent the night there at Gibeah, uh, which belongs to Benjamin. The men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house and, and that night, and they intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine, and she died. He kind of says what happened, but he leaves a lot of stuff out. And most importantly, he leaves out the fact that he threw his concubine out to them. Now, it's rather vague even here of when does the concubine die? Is it at the hands of them or at the hands of, of the husband? So there's this vagueness. They're looking for this wickedness that has happened. The narrator is being very vague because we don't know if the wickedness that they're asking about is the inhospitality of the Gibeonites or is it about the body parts being sent out all through Israel. Levi has this opportunity to bring the people together and say, let's look at the law of God. Let's see who God is. And let's decide based on what we see in the law as to what's supposed to be done. But he doesn't do that. He, he, he relates the story as if he and his concubine were out on a vacation. Yeah, well, they had uh, registered for an Airbnb. They had a place to stay there in Gibeah. It was all settled. They had paid it on their credit card. They went in. And all of a sudden, the people went crazy. They were about to kill me, he says. But then all of a sudden, they turned their attention on my concubine, and he leaves a lot of stuff out. 
we see here, as we look at this, the last verse, verse 7, he says, Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. He's got this opportunity to lead the nation as to what to do. Spiritually lead them. Say, this is what God's word says. This is what we're supposed to do in this situation. But what does he do? He hands it back over to them and kind of steps back. In fact, we don't see him again in the rest of chapter 20. All those verses, he's not mentioned again. If you go to chapter 21, you don't see him. He kind of becomes a coward. He threw his concubine out and shuts the door and goes to sleep. But now when he's supposed to avenge his concubine, instead of going and doing something, instead of being partaking of the battle, he steps back again and lets other people take it, take, take the, um, uh, go into battle. Here, so here's this situation. We see some things that we can apply. So the first is that the tribes will come together. And that's pretty neat that these tribes uh, come together. Uh, no one else had been able to bring them all together. Even all the judges, they weren't able to bring them together. But here, finally, this no-name Levi is able to bring all the tribes together. And I think that there is a certain application that we can make about this. Uh, this aspect seems to really please the Lord. He's speaking to them. He's talking to them. So many times we want to divide ourselves uh, according to our likes. We have certain ministries just for me, my age group, with my likes. And I don't mess with anybody else because we're in this ministry together. But that kind of goes contrary to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where you have the older people investing their lives in the life of the younger people. In fact, if you look at Titus 2, 1 through 8, you don't see a divided church all with their little segments of age groups, but you see a united church that's ministering together for the glory of God. So we see this, the tribes come together, and that seems like a good thing, but then we see these, the 400,000, and it's a hint that there's sin going on. There's a hint that sin is going on. Some scholars believe that there's about 400,000 soldiers that went into the land of Israel. And now here we're at about 150 years later, and there's still 400,000. How does this hint that there's sin going on? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 4 says that God would bless them with children if they obeyed the law. But they're basically the same amount of people as when they entered 150 years ago. He said in Deuteronomy 28, verse 18, that he would curse their offspring so that they wouldn't be having children if they disobeyed God. So the fact that there's this amount of people, which is basically the same amount of people that went in, indicates that something's going on spiritually with them. It lets the reader know, hey, they're not really following the Lord. And then we see this pathetic spiritual leader, very pathetic spiritual leader. He has the opportunity to speak as a spiritual leader, but instead he speaks as a victim. And he uses his victim card to get Israel to attack, and then he steps back. He's not going to engage. He's not going to participate. He's a coward. It's sad when pastors, elders, and deacons have opportunity to minister in churches, but rather they choose to become buddy-buddy with the people in the church. It's sad. It's sad when parents have the opportunity to parent, but instead they decide to become buddy-buddy with their children. And instead of speaking truth into a situation, they kind of cowered back and they want to just be a little buddy with them. He's a pathetic spiritual leader. Now, as we look at this, we see the reaction of the people. And this reaction to the testimony is outrage. I mean, just outrage. They, they go against these worthless, wicked fellows. 
They, they're just angry at them. They give them the opportunity to surrender those people from Gibeah. Benjamin's like, no, no, we're going to be loyal to our people. I don't care if they sin, we're going to be loyal to them. And so Israel will not listen, as it says there in uh, verse 13. Israel will not listen to them. I mean, uh, Benjamin will, will just not listen to them. So we see in verse 18 through 28, a sequence of three days and three battles that occur. If we look at this in verse 18, it says, Now the sons of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first uh, for us uh, to battle against the sons of Benjamin? It's an interesting thing because they assume they already know what God wants them to do. I think the better question would have been, What do you want us to do? To inquire of the Lord. But they assume that it's a done deal that they're supposed to go and do this. Now it's just the details. Who is supposed to go up and do it? Well, the husband's not going to participate in none of this. So uh, God answers, says Judah. She's from Bethlehem and Judah. Let the tribe of Judah go. And what's interesting is that Israel, uh, 22,000 men die. In fact, if you had a scoreboard, you would see 22,000 on the side of Israel, and Benjamin, it doesn't mention anybody of Benjamin, so it's zero. That's incredible. It's incredible because how the narrator paints, uh, paints Benjamin, Benjamin, who is the son of my right hand, son of my right hand, uh, they've got these 700 choice left-handed guys, which kind of already paints the picture that something awkward is going around with this son of my right hand who has these left-handed guys who are sharpshooters. But none of them die. So they, what do they do? They go up. After the battle, they go up. It says in verse 23, they went up and they wept before the Lord. Ah, God is starting to get their attention. See, they had come into the battle thinking, Gibeah is unrighteous. We're righteous. We're going to help them out being more righteous. Now they went up and they weep before the Lord. And they ask a question. It says, uh, shall we... Again, draw near for battle against the sons of my brother, Benjamin. It's kind of a silly question because what Gibeah did, uh, was it wrong or not? Had somehow God's holiness changed and now <laughs> yesterday it was bad, but today it's okay? It's kind of a silly question. Should we continue doing this? They asked the question, God says, keep on. So we see in verse 24, 18,000 soldiers and I think, if I don't have enough fingers, I, I get kind of lost. 22 plus 18,000 is? Oh, we're not going to talk, huh? 40, yes, amen. 40,000, that's a lot of people. Benjamin? Zero. Oh, can you imagine? Verse 26, it gives six things that they did. They went up, they wept, they remained before the Lord, they fasted, they offered burnt offerings, they offered peace offerings to God. Now God's got their attention. The fact that they're offering burnt offerings and peace offerings is that they're confessing their sins before God. Now they realize they're not as righteous as what they thought they were. Oh, but the sins of the Gibeonites is so much worse. No. The narrative has told us everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The details are different, but they're all doing the same thing before God. They're being sovereign in their own life. 
So they ask the Lord, and the Lord says that he's going to give them the victory. And we see there uh, that we see these sinners, and they have this righteous anger. Sinners with this righteous anger, but they never did stop to examine their own heart. They come before the Lord as a congregation. They come before, and they, they're united. They're angry, but they're not examining their own sin. Remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 and 5, where it says, before you go and take that speck out of your brother's eye, what are you supposed to do? Take the log out of your own eye? They didn't realize that. Jesus hadn't spoken those words yet. But they thought, definitely the Gibeonites have a huge log and we just have a little speck. But God says, no, not at all. You are all living without me being sovereign in your life. The details are different, but you're all doing the same sin. Now, the, they had a suffering that led to repentance. They had a suffering that led to repentance. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What's the difference? Sometimes people go through hard situations and turns their heart towards God, and they grow closer to God, and it brings salvation to their life. Others go through the same hard situations, and what do they do? They just become hardened and embittered and angry, and it leads to their death. Here, God used suffering in the life of Israel, and it turned their hearts so that they realized, hey, we're just as sinners as the Gibeonites. And they offer these burnt offerings and the peace offerings before the Lord. And what we see in this last section is that God uses whom he chooses to use. God decides to use the corrupt Gibeonites and the Benjamites to show Israel their need to repent. God uses whom he chooses to use. Now, the third scene is the victory that God gave. And this is a neat thing where they have this whole ambush situation. We know from verse, uh, uh, verse 34 that the Benjamin, Benjamin did not know that the disaster was close to them. And then further on down, when they finally see the smoke going up because they had a people that, a group that came and ambushed uh, the city, it says the men of Benjamin were terrified for they saw the disaster was close to them. They saw the disaster was close to them. God dealt with Benjamin's pride. Here Benjamin had decided, no, I'm not going to appear before the Lord. No, we're not going to deal with the sinfulness. We're going to be loyal to our own people. And God decides to deal with their sin. The other thing is that we see here is that God gave Benjamin time to repent. From the time it took the Levite to go, uh, cut up his concubine, send those different body parts out, to the, all these wars, all these battles, they had time to repent. And just they chose not to. Isn't that sad? Now, we might think it's sad that they lost this battle and they lost a whole bunch of people. But God gave them time and time again time to repent. But instead of repenting, they just kept on hardening their heart. We might want to feel bad for them, but God has showed them mercy. Yet, as it says in the text, they, they thought, we're going to win just like the time before. We, we've got it made. we got them running. They were full of pride. Last scene is the failure of Israel to act justly. And that's just found in verse 48. See, in verse 48, Israel had lost a lot of people, 40,000 people. Can you imagine? 
They weren't satisfied with just punishing the people from Gibeon. From Gibeah. They ended up destroying even more and more. They killed, they burned cities. Were they supposed to do that? Well, there's two different ways of seeing this. The first one is that the killing was good. And people would use maybe Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, where it's God saying that if a person worships an idol, he says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And they said, well, yes, all the people should have died because just as God condemns idolatry, uh, they should have destroyed them. I'm not sure that that applies here. I think the killing was wrong. Deuteronomy uh, verse 24, 16 says, The fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall... Sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. Should they kill the Gibeonites that committed the sin? Oh yeah, they deserve to die. How about the Benjamins, Benjamites? Well, that's a little bit questionable, all the ones that enter the battle. But all the families in the cities, should that have happened? They weren't submitting to the lordship of God. Therefore, they weren't acting wisely. Therefore, when they had an opportunity that they could seize, instead of being kind and merciful, they killed and killed and killed. See, it's, it's the same thing that the Gibeonites were doing. Just the details are different. And even today, we've got people who are living for themselves as if they have no king in their life. They want to say they're a Christian, but they do not submit to the Lordship of God. The details are just different. That's all it is. It's the same thing that's going on here. It's just the details are different. Christians must focus their attention on developing a relationship with God before being angry at the injustice of the world. And that's where we need to be. We need to be developing deep relationship with God by seeking to know God, seeking to obey God. We have to have this clear picture of what a disciple is or else we're going to be missing the mark. Knowing God requires your whole self. Learning him through the scriptures, but also putting into practice. It also requires obeying. And it's more than just memorizing verses, memorizing commandments. It has to do with so much more. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, All things are lawful to me, but all things are profitable. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It takes wisdom to live this life. And that's a disciple who submits to the lordship of Christ and lives wisely. We got this new year coming. We can't do anything about last year, this year. There's not a thing we can do. But how will we live 2021? Will we be a disciple? Will we have crystal clear what a disciple is, how a disciple seeks to know God and seeks to submit himself to the Lordship of Christ and, and, and seek to live wisely? Or will we do like Israel and Benjamin? You say, oh, i got no king. First thing you would need to do is accept Christ as your Savior. Because if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can't live under his authority. But then for other of us who have already accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's submitting to his will. It's being obedient to what he says to do. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray now, as we consider this text, 
Father, the details are different between the Gibeonites and the Israelites, but at the end, it's just people living for themselves. Father, I pray now that uh, we'll realize that it's the same thing that happens with us. That if we decide to not live under your authority, we'll just be just like them. I pray that if there's any here that, that has not ever accepted Christ as their Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for those of us who maybe haven't been disciples, we haven't been following Christ. I pray that today we'll repent of that and submit to his lordship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would, please stand, and we'll sing one stanza of uh, invitation if you want to come. And uh...